In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, you have not chosen us priests because of what we are, but because of what we might become. Grant that through the redemption of thy Son and the gift of thy Spirit, we may fulfill your holy will. We ask this through the cross and the exaltation of Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There is one thing of which priests cannot be generally accused, and that is of taking ourselves too seriously. Simply because we know what we are supposed to be, we never much exult in appearances. And furthermore, we always have our priestly brethren to bring us down to a democratic level. And St. Paul himself was very conscious of that. There is a second century description of St. Paul, which does not make him too attractive physically. He himself said he was not. He said he was unsightly. And he was not a good speaker. And he proved to be a great apostle. But he took us all in, in what he wrote to the Corinthian people, when he said, We are no better than pots of earthenware to contain this treasure. And this proves that such transcendent power does not come from us, but is God's alone. So we are pots of earthenware. I wonder where he got that expression. Was it from Gideon? Remember when Gideon went out to do battle with the Midianites, and his army was reduced to 300 from 30,000 in order to prove that God was with him with a small army? Gideon put candles inside of earthenware pitchers. And then at night, when they provoked the surprise attack against the Midianites, they blew their trumpets, struck the earthenware pots. The candlelight appeared, and the enemy was put to rout by the suddenness of this brilliance. Maybe that's what he was thinking of. But in any case, we're nothing but pots of earthenware to contain this great treasure. Otherwise, the power would be ours. After all, look at the men whom the apostles were and whom the Lord chose. We sometimes become discouraged with the young men, feel they have not the maturity 
and the training and so forth to enter into the priesthood. But heaven's alive. That group that he gathered around him certainly did not give tremendous promise. Peter, he was anything but a rock. He was a reed. But he was to become a rock. Then the night of the Last Supper, just a few hours before the Blessed Lord goes to his agony in the garden, he talks about his death, about going to the Heavenly Father to prepare a place for these twelve men that are gathered around him, and he's heckled. Imagine. Thomas heckled him. Peter heckled him. Philip heckled him. The Lord almost seemed to lose patience with Philip, who said, Well, show us the Father. And our Lord said, Philip, Philip, have I been with you all this time? And still you do not understand? John and James had a political mother. One of her two sons to be at least auxiliary bishops. And she did everything she possibly could. And the good Lord said it was the Heavenly Father that gave those positions. And John had this ambition, maybe because his father was wealthy. They had servants in the Zebedee Fishing Company. There's no evidence that Peter and Andrew ever had servants. And John had impetuosity. He wanted fire rain down from heaven to destroy the Samaritan city that would not receive our blessed Lord. But how does he end? He ends in anonymity. Here this man who wanted the top place now just describes himself the beloved disciple. That's all. There's only one time when he does not. And that was when, after the resurrection, the seven men were in the boat. And our blessed Lord, the week after Easter, was on the shore in the early dawn. And John does not there describe himself as a beloved disciple. He was ashamed. I look what Peter did. Peter went back to fishing. Our Lord called him away from fishing. You priests who, who are pre-Vatican will remember the second nocturne. I think it was St. Gregory who told us that it was no great sin for the apostles to go back to fishing because there was not much money in it. Now that's a very lame excuse, all credit to St. Gregory. They just were disappointed and they went back to fishing. So our blessed Lord changed the analogy and began to talk of sheep and lambs. So they were nothing. We're nothing. But what a treasure we have in these pots of earthenware. And these pots of earthenware have received a gift. 
a gift, celibacy. That is the way our Lord describes it, as a gift. That is the way the Vatican Council describes it. Celibacy is a gift that is given to some men. He gave it to us. We did not offer celibacy. We received it. And as long as we remain close to him, we will have it and keep it. There was not much honor paid to celibacy in the Old Testament. Every rabbi had to be married. Shortly before the life of our blessed Lord, I believe there was one rabbi who was not married. That was because there was so much emphasis in the Old Testament on physical generation. But there were three instances, however, when there was a kind of a temporary celibacy, which was very interesting. One, when there was a theophany. When God was about to appear to the Israelites in the desert, and Moses addressed them and said to the men, you will all stay away from women. God is to appear. The second instance was in time of war. Men refrained from being with their wives. And when David came to the high priest because he was starving and asked for some loaves of bread, the high priest said, Have you stayed away from women? David said, Yes, all of our men are fighting and at war. And remember when David later on tried to get Uriah drunk? in order to blame paternity of Bathsheba onto the husband, Uriah said he couldn't go home to his wife. He was at war. In the third instance, mentioned in the book of Maccabees, was the dedication of a temple. Whenever God seemed to be close, like the appearance in the mountain, so when the mountain shook, when there was a war in the name of God, when his temple was dedicated, there was such an intensity of the divinity about that celibacy became suggested. But those are the only three great instances in the Old Testament. I say there was an emphasis upon generation, remember, Seven women would lay hold of one man because it was a shame to be unwed. And that is why we have, for the last of all the generations, physical generations, the long genealogy in Matthew and the genealogy in Luke. Here was the suggestion of the relatives in the background of our blessed Lord. When you leave the Old Testament and get into the New, there is not that emphasis, or let us put it this way, there was not that shame on being unwed. Because in the kingdom of God, what mattered was doing his will. Sacramentally in matrimony, doing his will, in our case, by receiving a gift. 
So there was no longer the stress that there was in the Old Testament. Which brings up the question of why women could not be priests. Psychologically, sociologically, statistically, maybe they should be. Although I don't agree even on those points. But those are generally the arguments that are used. Now, why in the divine, biblical order can they not be priests? Is it because we want a monopoly on it? Certainly not. It is because the whole divine order is based on nuptials. Creation began with nuptials. The nuptials of man and woman in the Garden of Eden. Then there came the nuptials of Israel and God. In the prophet Hosea we read, I, your creator, am your husband. See how the natural and the divine order here are linked together? I, your creator, am your husband. And the prophet Hosea is particularly beautiful because God says to Hosea, marry a prostitute. He marries a worthless woman, has children with odd names, sells herself for gold, for silver, for wheat, for oil, and breaks the heart of Hosea. But he obeyed God because he was a prophet. And this was a marriage that was to be symbolic. And despite all of the agony that she brought to Hosea, God said to Hosea, finally, take her back, take her back. She's the symbol of Israel. Israel's my bride. Unfaithful, disloyal, disobedient. But I will always love Israel. Oh, if every Jew would just read over that prophet Hosea and see how deep and profound is the love of God for his people. And Paul, who loved them so deeply, said there was a veil over their faces which would eventually be removed. But here was another form of nuptials. Now we come to the new order. We have the nuptials not just of man and woman, not just the nuptials of God and Israel, but the nuptials of divinity and humanity in the incarnation of our blessed Lord. Then on the cross, we have the nuptials of God-man and the new Israel, which is the church. And out of this marriage, a bridegroom and bride on the cross, the new Adam and the new Eve, there begins the new progeny. John, the firstborn. And it multiplies at Pentecost. And it's been multiplying ever since. So 
So nuptials becomes the foundation of the covenant order. God continues it. And sex is not basic when you get into the divine order. All of these other arguments are drawn from the erotic order, from sex. And the feminine sex ought to have these rights. But when you get into the divine order, what does our blessed Lord call that woman who touched the hem of his garment? My daughter. Was she his daughter? He called the apostles, my children. Did he beget them? See, Paul called the mother of Rufus. Remember the two sons of Simon of Cyrene, who became bishops in the early church? One of them was Rufus. And St. Paul says, the mother of Rufus was my mother. Oh, she was not his mother. St. Paul says in his letters to the Romans, for example, I have begotten you as most dear children in Christ. So this idea of getting back into the order of sex simply because we happen to live in an erotic age is not approaching the problem. There are other ways of begetting. The word is the seed. The seed is the word. And the word gives the seed to the earth. The word gives the seed to the church. Every time we mount a pulpit, the word is the seed. Man gives the seed. The woman receives the seed. She fecundates it, nourishes it, brings it to life, educates it, caresses it, loves it, so that in the new order we have Christ and his bride, the church. Now those who want women to become priests no longer want the bridegroom Christ to have a bride. Should they not be proud of the fact that they symbolize the bride which is the church? But we have to be proud of symbolizing Christ himself. And the church is the ecclesial body of Christ. This is the reason why the church just simply had to reaffirm tradition. And almost all of the opposition to the letter of the Holy Father comes from the viewpoint of psychology and sociology, but without, with little reference certainly to sacred scripture.
Celibacy, of course, does create a tension. It creates a double kind of tension. It creates a tension to keep it. It creates a tension if we ever break it. We're caught both ways. It creates a tension to keep it because, well, we're lonely. We are solitary. We have vital forces, the same as anyone else. And main, namely, they are more vital simply because we keep them restrained. And it sometimes says that, oh, well, he was a weak man, he had to succumb. Listen, who knows the strength of a wind? The man who stands up against it or the one who is blown over by it? The one who resists it. So we have a terrific tension in keeping it. And the Lord has to keep guarding this treasure. On the other hand, if we in any way break it, we have another tension. Then comes worries, discontent, criticism, inner unhappiness, and God keeps stirring the soul. He will not leave it alone, making it more and more unhappy. That is what the scriptures mean, grieve not the spirit. In other words, do not make the spirit of Christ that is in you sad. We have in scripture the wrath of the Father. We have in scripture the wrath of the Son. Because in the book of Revelation, we hear of the wrath of the Lamb. Did you ever see a mad lamb? Well, the lamb is going to have wrath. As a matter of fact, I heard that someone said to me I was attending a convention of automobile men and talking to them in Las Vegas. And one of them said, I have good news and bad news. Good news, the Lord is coming. Bad news, he's mad. That's the wrath of the Lamb. Though we speak of the wrath of the Father, the wrath of the Lamb of God, you never hear of Scripture speaking of the wrath of the Spirit. So those who are inclined to secularity, as regards this gift, they have attention. It is far worse than ours who try to keep it. And just as soon as they cease to pay attention to that finger of God and that whispering of the Spirit, then, of course, there is a lapse. As Pascal says, unhappiness begins when God no longer wars against us. God gives us peace. He also gives us war. And is an evidence of how reluctant he is to have us go.
The law then that seems to always prevail is that as there is an emphasis on the eros, here understood as erotic, there is always a decline on the agape, or sacrificial love. Give the erotic prominence, there's a hesitancy about visiting the Blessed Sacrament. about talking about divine things, an uneasiness in the face of the spiritual and the innocent. When, however, the agape begins to dominate, then the erotic goes down. As soon as the sacrificial love takes hold of the soul, there is much less tension and there is much more energy. It could very well be that fatigue is not just physical. It is also a want of love. We often become tired in mind and soul before we are tired in body. And even with all the tensions that we have, whatever they be, they are all overcome by what might be called the expulsive power of a great affection, a great love. I once spent a summer in New York in Hell's Kitchen, which is a very disreputable part of New York. And it was not unusual for some of the members of Hell's Kitchen, gangsters, to come with a very beautiful bride and ask to be married. And they would say, well, I've completely changed. I've met this beautiful woman, and now my life will be different. The expulsive power of a great affection. That's the basis of the holy hour. The expulsive power of a great affection. And we stay near the sacred heart and are worn by the flames of that heart but simply because we are poor pots of earthenware. As Francis Thompson put it, the end of the sound of heaven, when the hound caught up with the soul, the hound said, poor, piteous, futile thing, why should any set thee love apart? Seeing none but I make much of naught, he said. And human love needs human meriting. And how hast thou merited? Of all man's clotted clay, the dingiest clot. Alas, thou knowest not how little worthy of any love thou art.
For whom wilt thou find to love ignoble thee? Save me. Save only me. All that thy child's mistakes fancies is lost, I have stored for thee at home. Rise. Clasp my hand and come.